Welcome to the Living the Dream Podcast with Curveball. If you believe, you can achieve. Hello and welcome to another episode of Living the Dream with Curveball. I'm your host, Curveball, and today I am joined by Mark Lugwig. He is the founder of Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, and we're going to be talking about his organization, about why he decided to found this organization, and all the legislation that they have passed and that they're working on. So, Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you so much. I sure appreciate it. Uh, I always love an opportunity to help raise awareness for people that have no idea of situation that's going on is unfortunately affects literally millions of kids around the country. So I, I appreciate a chance to come on. Absolutely. Why don't you start off just by giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? I know that you're well accomplished. I read through your bio, just kind of maybe tell people where you're from and maybe some of the accomplishments that you've achieved throughout your life. Yeah, my uh, background, I've, I've been politically active for years. And uh, literally, uh, since I was in grade school, people swore that I was going to run for president someday. And uh, I had run for U.S. Congress and had originally planned on, on starting to run for office and, and eventually run for some pretty high up offices and had made a lot of connections in that realm in the state of Missouri. And uh, but I had no idea the direction my life was going to go. It, uh, now I don't know that I will ever ever run for office myself. Now I, I just believe that the path I was led on was to put me in a position to be effective in in the situation I'm in. I uh, ended up having a, a child that was born ten years ago. Uh, I'd be eleven years ago on March seventh, and went through a a pretty nasty custody battle. Uh, his mother and I were not married at the time, and I wasn't aware that if you're not married, you have no legal rights to that child. Uh, and I wanted to, I, I did want to have a paternity test because there was some, some question about whether I was the father or not. And uh, I'd always wanted to have kids. I've been very active. I'd served on the board of directors for several different organizations for kids and you know, teach, teach kids at my church and have always been just real active with kids. So I was, I was thrilled to death about having a child, but obviously I wanted to make sure he was mine. <laughs> and when I mentioned that I wanted a DNA test, uh, I was told that uh, if I ever attempted that, I would never see that child again, which raised my suspicions even more. If, if, you, if you knew a, a person was the father, normally you don't try to hide a DNA test. Normally you would say, well, great, let's get one. So the, the fact that she denied me a request to get a DNA test raised my suspicions that uh, I may not be the father. And so I ended up going 204 days without seeing my son. Uh, I, I saw him for the first six weeks that he was born and then went 204 days without seeing him. Uh, during that period of time, he was moved without my knowledge. And I, I'll just tell you, you can't imagine a more hopeless feeling than somebody like me who wanted a child bad that thinks there's a, a chance that this child could be mine and not knowing. And then if he is not knowing if you'll ever see him again, it was, it was the most depressing thing I've ever been through in my life. And I can remember so many nights coming home from work and sitting on the couch and, and literally just stared at the ceiling crying 
and, uh, you know, waking up there, or not even waking up, but looking over, noticing the sun was coming up and I'd been there all night long. It was time to change my clothes and go back to work again. I mean, when you think of, you know, anybody who has kids just can just imagine what it would feel like, especially when your child's six weeks old, to have that child ripped out of your life and not know if you're ever going to see him again. And then uh, I did finally get a couple of visits with him and then went through a year long court battle to get basically relegated to an every other weekend visitor to my own son. <laughs> and I started doing research on kids that go through the situation. And I was just astonished at the percentage of kids that turn out to, to drop out of high school early, um, incarceration rates, violent crime rates, uh, behavioral problems, uh, drug problems, uh, literally over 80% of all of those, the one common ingredient they have is, is they grew up without a dad. And yes, there are some dads that unfortunately walk away, but you don't punish the parents of the good kids, or of the good, the good parents, for the children who have dads that want to be a part of their life. And now that you mentioned that, it's funny because um, I know all about the uh, not being able to, to see your kid because um, my kids went through DCF um, about, oh, four years ago. And yes, if you and the mom are not married, then they, even if your name is on the birth certificate, they still consider you the presumed father or however they say that. And then, like you say, when you go to court, they will rule for the mother. And and why do you think that? Like you say, some some dads do walk away, but for the dads who are fit and want to be in, in the life, I mean, they, they have to fight so hard. Why do you, why, why do you think that is? And, and how, how many percentages of court cases would you say where the mother is ruled for almost no matter yeah, na what. Nationwide, 83% of the cases, the mother will be ruled the custodial parent. And the other 17% are all other, which means not just the dad, but it could be grandparents, it could be CPS, it could be, but 83% but of the cases, the mother is ruled. And part of it, I think, may stem to the Beaver Cleaver days back when I was a kid. Uh, you know, the, the mother was naturally the nurturer. But then they had a lot of the, the women's movements for equal, you know, the equality of women and women wanting to be treated equal. Well, if that's the case, then that means the man is going to be more of a nurturer because they're both going to have jobs. And so both parents are going to raise the kids. But regardless, a child needs both input and not, not to get into everyone's spiritual beliefs, but I, I just believe that, that chill, it was designed for a man and a woman to create a child and normally opposites attract. And I think that's by design because all of us have strengths and we have weaknesses. And normally you're attracted to someone who can compensate for your weaknesses and accentuate your strengths. And in raising a child, you know, as much as I'm not real thrilled about my son's mom, she does add value to her to his life that I can't add. And I add value to his life that she can't add. And so to rip a parent out of a child's life, you're ripping half of his DNA, half of the ability for that child to learn and grow. And you know, normally the, the father is more of a disciplinarian and you take that element out. And that's why we, we find, you know, if you go to almost any major city in the, in the country, 
and look at the gangs, I can almost promise you this. Almost every one of those gang members didn't have a dad in the home when they grew up. And so we're, we're ripping the, the fathers, but I'll fight just as hard for a mother, by the way, because there are some mothers that are affected. And there are some mothers too. I want to make sure that just, there are some men who do walk away. So this is not in any way a slam on some of the single mothers that are having to raise a child on their own, that there are situations where that does happen. And uh, so I want to make sure that I do res you know, respect some of those that are doing a hard job, but we have to be very careful. Sometimes a couple breaks up, they either get divorced or separated. And after that divorce or separation, they use the child as a weapon to get back at the other parent. And that should never happen. The, whatever happened to the result of the relationship has nothing to do with that child. And just like in my situation, obviously I, I had a double whammy. I had someone that I thought I was involved in a loyal monogamous relationship with that I found out was probably not the case. And then I had the second double whammy of here I'm, you know, I have a child that I love that I'm not allowed to parent. Well, the only focus from this point on should be the child part. It should not be. Well, let me ask you. Oh, yeah. Because I interrupted you earlier. Um, how did everything work out for you um, once you finally did get to see your child? Did you get your DNA? Um, uh, you know, when you went to court, how did you get from just every other weekend to where you are yeah, now? Yeah, I did get a DNA test. I had a feeling, though. I don't even know how to describe it. But because uh, my mom was telling me, because I was selling everything, uh, because as you can imagine, you, you know, I had to hire a private detective to find out where she was and attorney fees. And, and then obviously I wasn't earning as much income. I obviously wouldn't get any overtime at work because I was too distressed. And uh, so my income took a dip and I was literally selling things left and right to get the money to pay for attorneys and everything. And I remember my mom asked me, she was like, Mark, what, what are you going to do if, if it turns out he's not your child? And I told her, I was like, mom, I don't know how to describe it, but there's a feeling inside. I just, I, you know, I definitely want the DNA test to confirm it, but I just, I feel like he's mine. And, uh, but I, I still, to this day, I would much rather have gone for it and, and find out he's not mine than not go for it and find out 18 years later, I missed out on a chance to raise a child. So I did get the DNA test a little over halfway through the 204 days. Uh, ironically, it still took almost three more months to get my first visit with him, which just absolutely blows my mind that the court knew that he was my child by that point, And it took almost 90 more days for me to be able to see him for the first time. That, that just shocked the heck out of me. And why do you think that is? Because with these cases, whether it's, um, custody or, or DCF or anything like that, it, it just seems like. It just takes forever because when my kids were in the system, it took 20 months to finalize everything. It's like they just keep dragging stuff on, even though they know certain things. Why do you think that is? I, I'm just still astonished at that. And that's one thing that we're working on, changing the laws for these, because this is, you know, sand's going through the hourglass here. We're not talking about, you know, property being damaged or we're not talking about, you know, agricultural rules. We're talking about a child's life here. And it just blows my mind that this is allowed to continue. Uh, I think there's two reasons. One is there's a lot of federal money in both the CPS system and in the family court system. A lot. And we're talking billions of dollars 
in federal incentive money that states get. So like in your situation, if a child is placed in CPS, CPS is getting the state level is getting federal incentive money from the feds for that. So they don't, uh, to be honest, a lot of them, they don't like to see the children go out of CPS because they get less money. It's Not actually- only are they getting federal money, but they, they're also, they, they make you pay child support too, or they can. Exactly, yes. And then in, in family so law, they're getting the a double thing. whammy. Now, in family law, the other thing you have going is that's how attorneys make their money is this adversarial relationship. Because attorneys realize that you may give up on your house, you may give up on your car, but most parents aren't going to give up on their kids. They're going to fight for that. And attorneys know that. And so if you were to walk into a family law attorney today and say, hey, I'm getting a divorce, I'd, I'd like to you know, do the right thing and make sure that I'm, I'm, you know, my kids are going to see the other parent equally. In many cases, a majority of cases across the country, the family law attorney will look you in the eye and say, oh, in our state, you're not going to get 50-50. One of you is going to win and one of you is going to lose. So unless you want to be the loser, I need you to tell, dig up all kinds of dirt on why that parent shouldn't be a parent to your child. So here we have a couple at the most emotional point of their relationship, they're breaking up. And now somebody's rallying them up even more to dig up dirt on the other parent. You know, can you imagine how different it would be if you could walk into that same attorney's office and the attorney could say, look, in our state, you're probably gonna get 50-50 unless there's just some unbelievable reason. So you may as well get along. I mean, it's just amazing. But instead, the attorneys know that. So what they do, they rile you up and they like to keep these court cases dragging on because attorneys will charge anywhere from, you know, family law attorney on the low end, $250 an hour. Average is probably closer to $350 an hour. Some of them are charging five, six, seven, $800 an hour. And, you know, they don't want to just work a few hours. So they're going to drag these cases on as long as they can. And it's, it's, it's really a shame because it's, it's children that are suffering. And I, I'm just astonished that this has been allowed to continue. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about your organization and, and what you guys are doing to make changes to this yeah, I started, issue that's yeah, going on. Yeah, there's a lot of good groups. And I, you know, obviously I, I'm, a, I'm proud of our organization, but I, I don't want to delegitimize some, some other great organizations in what I term the, the shared parenting community a lot of great organizations. But uh, since I had been involved in politics, I noticed it in the greater shared parenting community, there were a lot of people that just didn't know how to talk to legislators or where to even begin, what to do. You know, they knew that they're, they were mad. They knew something had to change, but they didn't know what had to change, how it had to change, and how to go about it. And I was very fortunate having a background in, of almost 25 years in the political arena. So I I started doing some Facebook Lives, basically educating people, trying to educate, enable, and empower people on how they could make change in their own states. So I did the Facebook Lives. I did series every Monday night that to this day I've been doing now for almost five years, uh, teaching people how to call a legislator, how to deal with their legislative assistant, um, how, to, how to frame the narrative to explain it and articulate the message to a legislator, how to talk to the media, and, and the political process. And I, I gained a pretty big following. I believe someone told me recently, my, my videos have been viewed a total of 32 million times uh, by the time you look at all the channels they've been on over the last five years. 
And so I went ahead and started an organization called Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. And that is my goal. I, I always tell people, I don't ever want somebody to say that was Mark Ludwig's piece of legislation or Americans for Equal Shared Parenting's legislation. But I'll be darn proud if someday say, you know what, Mark helped teach me what to do when I got the bill changed in my own state. So I, I do help work. This past year, I was involved with 29 different states uh, of groups of people in 29 different states working on legislation in their own states. And we are making progress. Now, unfortunately, as I said, we're dealing with billions of dollars. And these are each individual state has to pass their own law. So it's it's nothing that's going to happen overnight. Uh, this past year, I believe we would have passed in several states the challenges with COVID. Basically, everything shut down. And unless it had to do with budget issues or health issues, no legislation was going to see the time of day. But I do believe in 2021, we've got a lot of hope. There's a, several states that I believe have a darn good chance this year of passing. And I think once a handful of states pass some laws, there's going to be a ripple effect. Normally, no state so, wants to be the first, but no state wants to be the last. So what kind of laws are did you work to pass in these 29 states? And in 2021, what kind of laws are you working yeah. on passing so that way people will be Yeah, the aware? main one is what we call a 50-50 rebuttable presumption. And what that means is there's a presumption that each child should have 50-50 equal access to both of their fit, willing, and able parents. But the word rebuttable means that you have a right to challenge that. So if, for instance, a parent is not fit, willing, or able, a judge still has judicial discretion to say, hey, you don't just automatically rubber stamp 50-50. But right now, the standard across the country, as we already said, 83% of the cases, the mother will be the primary custodial parent right out of the chute. And you have to almost prove why the mother is unfit in order for a child to get the 50-50. We're saying, no, no, the, the case should start at 50-50. And then you need to decide, is there an overriding reason? Because regardless of what somebody thinks of a parent, the child still admires that parent. I, I give the analogy, even if a parent is in jail, and, and I don't care what they did to, in society, in that child's mind, that's still their parent. And they still love that parent. They have unconditional love for that parent. So there has to be an overriding reason of, of why is a parent unfit, unwilling, or unable. You know, a primary reason or, or a good example is a DWI. Now, I don't drink. I've never drank. But we all know that there's people that have had a DWI. Now, if a, if a person is married and has a DWI, we may not like it, but you're not going to take a child's a, you know, a children away from a parent unless the children were in the car while they were doing it. But if, if a, a father has a DWI and they're out on their own one night, if they're married, nothing happens. But if they're in a custody battle, in many cases, that'll be used against them as an unfit parent. And now the same parent is put in a different class because they're not married. And so what we're trying to say is, hey, the same standard that applies when a couple is married should apply when they're not married regarding the children. So that's the, the main bill that we're working on getting passed. And then there's- well, a Let me just ask a question about that but before you go to the other one. Yeah. Um, as far as the fit, willing, and, and able part. Now, I also know that not only do you have to worry about being a, a man and getting your rights taken away from you, if you're a disabled man, because I'm totally blind. And I, I know when I was going through the situation, they were basically saying, hey, we can just go in 
and have the judge to sign it because you're blind. Now, I know the National Federation for the Blind has been working with certain states, but in Kansas, I guess they can consider you automatically unfit if you're disabled. Are you guys putting any legislation? Have you ever dealt with any disabled parents? And are you putting any legislation forward to say the same thing that you can't just take a person's kid because they're disabled? It needs to be proven that there's a reason to. See, and that, that's a, another great example. If a couple was married and the man was blind, the, the courts would have no problem with it. But all of a sudden you put that, you know, put that child in a divorce situation and now there's a double standard. Now, supposedly, so yeah, we want to have what we, a minimum of what we call a preponderance of evidence that there has to be some standard of why. Just because a parent's blind, that means nothing. What is it specifically about them being blind that puts that child in danger? If you can't come up with something very specific that that child is in serious danger, you can't rip that child out. And, and as you and I know, you know, there may, you know, there may be situations, but even with that though, I mean, nowadays, as you know, better than me, but with, you know, with, uh, you know, seeing eye dogs and things like that, I, I just can't imagine that there's too many situations that you would need to rip a child out for that reason. And, and like I said, I mean, you're, you're ripping a parent out of a child's life. There better be a darn serious threshold before you do that, because that child is going to have a void for the rest of their life. And I, you'd be surprised how many of my followers are not the people who are in the divorce. They're the grown children who grew up and say, you know what? I only got to see my dad every other weekend and I, I resented it. And I, what I'm even more amazed at is how many people tell me that they were told for years that their dad didn't love them and their dad ran out on them. And then they tracked their father down, you know, 10, 20, 30 years later. And the father had bankers boxes full of return to sender birthday cards, Christmas cards. And, and, you know, one of my friends from high school that happened to, and she, their parents got divorced when they were nine. And she, by the time she was 12, she literally hated her dad, not just didn't want anything to do with him. I mean, passionately hated him and, you know, thought he wanted nothing to do with her and ran out on her. And then she started having dreams when she was in her late 20s of her dad playing baseball with her, you know, playing softball in the yard and teaching her to ride a bike. And she realized, you know what? I, I think my dad was around when I was little. I'm starting to have all these memories now and tracked him down. And that was one of those cases where he pulled out boxes. He ended up declaring bankruptcy, was homeless because he spent so much money on attorney fees and finally realized, you know what? I, I got to put the mask on myself and just hope and pray that one day she seeks me out to find out the truth. And the sad thing is 60 days later, he died of, I believe it was pancreas, pancreatic cancer. Wow. And she spent 20 something years hating her own dad only to get two months with him at the very end to watch him die. I mean, and, and I mean, it just, and, and we still keep in contact on a regular basis. And she said, now, she won't even talk to her mom. She absolutely hates her mom with a passion because of all the lies that she was told. And from my side, I kept a journal that, uh, you know, I've, I've never let him read it yet because I don't think he's an age that he can understand. But I'd been reading stories like that. And I thought, what if someday my son's told all these lies and doesn't, you know, and wants to know the truth. So uh, I started writing a journal to him every night before I went to bed. 
And I, I'm very careful to not put his mom down in that journal, but he'll be able to figure out a lot of the things that she did. Normally what I do is I tell him how I was feeling, how I was missing him, how I drove by a school bus stop and saw kids waiting for the school bus and, and you know, just sat there at the stoplight wondering what would it be like to, to be able to see my son someday you know, going off to school. And, I, and I've kept it up to this day. I've, I've now got 32 books of 100 pages per book of a journal so he's 10 years old and literally every night of his life has been journaled. But I, you know, I plan on giving it to him someday uh, when he's old enough to understand. But that's the other key too, is to make sure children don't know. At this point, my son doesn't know anything about what his mom did. And, uh, and I try the best to, to keep it from him. Uh, I think he's, he kind of gets an idea every once in a while and he's, he's caught her in several lies on his own. <laughs> So I, I think he realizes that, that things aren't adding up, but I, I don't really plan on telling him and I don't plan on giving him these journals until he's at least 18 or 20 years old. Absolutely. And what was that other bill that, that you were going to talk about that you guys are trying to get through? Is, another one is what we call facts, findings, and conclusions. Because right now a judge is allowed to issue an order and say, basically, you know, one parent gets every other weekend, but they don't have to give a reason. They, that's all they have to do is say, hey, every other weekend, and then they sign their name and that's it. Well, you can't appeal in a case then because the appeals court needs to know a legal reason of what was done wrong in the courtroom. Well, there's nothing there. So we have what we call facts, findings, and conclusions, which forces a judge to give written facts and findings on how they arrived at their conclusion. And we got that passed in Missouri back in 2016, and it's been a game changer for at least half of the state uh, in Missouri to where judges realize, uh-oh, I have to put in writing how I arrived. It's, it's hard to justify given every other weekend <laughs> if you don't have some overriding reason of why one parent is, excuse me, is unfit, unwilling, or unable. So it's, it definitely swings. It's not as much as we want, but it starts the pendulum swinging in the right direction. And then another one that we want is to have, uh, you know, vital statistics to where judges have to record, you know, how much time they're giving so can, we can see trends. Is one judge giving 50-50 in almost every case and another judge in the same building is only giving 50-50 in like one out of every 10 cases? To, because that is happening. We did a study recently, or not recently, National Parents Organization did one. I believe it was in 2014 in Nebraska, and it was staggering the difference from county to county of how judges were ruling. I mean, you literally could live across the street from somebody in a different county and get a totally different ruling than somebody in the other adjoining county. That's pretty crazy. So if a person was interested in getting involved in the equal shared parenting community and they wanted to start up a movement or a group in their state, how would they go about that? What what things would they need to do and what tips would you have for them? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. We've got a very active Facebook presence. We've got a national page that's all spelled out, Americans for Equal Shared Parenting. So if you go to Facebook and spell it all out, Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, that's our main national page. And I think we've got like 48,000 followers on, on that one. And then we also have individual state chapters for every state. So every state will be the abbreviation AFESP 
space and then their state spelled out. So like AFESP space Kansas or AFESP space Missouri. So each state has their own chapters. But yeah, we would love to have people help uh, in their own state because legislators at the state level want to hear from people in their own state. They don't want a national organization coming in and telling people what to do. But my goal, as I said, is to educate, enable, and empower people to where I can train them what to do in their own state. And I also, in, in almost every state, I have people I can connect them with. So if they've been affected by this issue, uh, the big key is to help like and share some of our posts because unless someone's been personally affected, they really don't think there's a problem with it. And you know, I certainly didn't realize there was a problem until it affected me. So just by liking and sharing the post, it helps educate the, because I, I always believe like Martin Luther King Jr. used to always say, until people who are not affected by an issue become concerned about it, nothing's going to change. So we need to educate people on why this is a problem. The problem has nothing to do with father's rights. It's the, it's the problem with the child. It's the child who's going to grow up with that void of wondering, where's my dad? Does my dad not love me? Why do I? Because a lot of children, that's what they think. They think that, well, I only get to see dad on weekends, so maybe he doesn't love me. You know, they don't know. I, I still, to this day, I only get to see my son eight overnights a month. He has no idea that I have spent 10 years of my life and every penny I have fighting for him, trying to get just one more night with him, one more hour, one more hug, one more goodnight kiss, one more time to tuck him into bed, one more time to do homework with him. I've spent 10 years of my life consumed with trying to get more time with my son. But I don't tell him that. I don't want him to realize how, you know, how his mom's been fighting against me. So I, I have to wonder at times, does he know? You know, does he wonder, well, gee, maybe dad doesn't want to see me. That's why I only get to see him on weekends. So I have to find creative ways to tell him without putting his mom down. I, I just tell him, you know, I, I'm always telling him, I love you. I love you. I love you. You mean everything to me. You're, you know, I'm constantly trying to reinforce him how much I love him. But there's a lot of kids out there that only see their dads on weekends or every other weekend. And, and I have to wonder how many of those kids think their dad doesn't love them. And that's why they're not seeing them. And they have no idea. I mean, like I said, I've redone everything in my life, rearranged everything. And, and a lot of people don't realize that, you know, it, it gets into child support issues where people say, well, gosh, you know, they're, they're just wanting to get out of child support. I, there's parents intentionally earning less income so they don't have to pay child support. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. I get my son on weekends. If you're going to work overtime or, or, you know, extra or get a second job, most people do that on weekends. I value time with my son much more than I value the second job or the time and a half. So I struggle quite a bit because I'm paying for the bedroom in his mom's house while I'm also paying for the bedroom at my house. So I'm paying for two bedrooms every single month while I don't have the right to get overtime. I don't have the right to get a second job. And like I said, most kids are growing up with no idea how hard the struggle is on their dad just to be a part of their life. So yeah, if anybody can help us out, we would love the help. Easiest way, like I said, Facebook all spelled out, Americans for Equal Shared Parenting, or the website is the abbreviation, AFESP.com is the uh, website that we have. Now, besides that legislation that you talked about, 
are there any other projects that your organization is working on or any, any other thing that people need to know about? Yeah, we're working at, at the federal level, working on some of the incentive programs. That's probably going to be a whole nother show sometime if you want to, to describe. It's very confusing, but there's a federal incentive program that's worth billions of dollars to states that's created the problem. So we're working at the federal level to change that, but it to change something at the federal level is just unbelievable. I, I thought state issues were hard enough to get changed, but it's nothing compared to how hard it is at the federal level. So we are starting to work at the federal level, but it's it's going to be years before we can get that federal program changed. Absolutely. So besides your Facebook page, are there any other social media accounts or any other ways to contact you guys? Yeah, that's the main thing is the website, the AFESP.com or the Facebook page are the two main ways that, that people get a hold of us. Okay, great. Are there any other topics that we have not covered or any other things, issues that you would like to discuss that we haven't touched on? No, I, like I said, I just really appreciate a, a chance to raise awareness just because as I said, kids need both parents in their lives. I mean, we've all seen the videos of a, a military person coming home and surprising their kid at a basketball game. And the kid goes tearing across that basketball floor and jumps into the arms of their dad who surprised him. And that's, I mean, that's what kids feel in their heart for both parents. And they should have a right to have equal access to both parents. You know, if, if one parent were to die, if, you know, I, I hope it wouldn't, because as much as I said, regardless of how I feel about his mom, I love my son so much that I want him to have a good relationship with her. But if something were to happen to her and she were to die, I would automatically get full custody. I mean, how silly that, I'm, you know, I'm fit enough to be a hundred percent parent if she's not around, but when she's around, I'm only good enough to be eight overnights a month. That just is unreal. So we just need to help raising awareness. So the more people can help like and sharing some of our Facebook posts, we would sure appreciate the help. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Lugwig, and please make sure listeners to like, rate, and review after listening. Mark, Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you. I sure appreciate it. For more information on the Living the Dream podcast, visit www.djcurveball.com. Until next time, stay focused on living the dream.